I'm glad to be back again at uh, College Station. I've enjoyed the two previous visits I've had. And the last time I was here, we were having a prayer conference of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and your pastor brought 100 students over to share in that conference. Well, not many pastors do that, and not many pastors have got 100 who would want to come. So it was a great joy to me to uh, have that fellowship. I want to speak this morning about the spirit-controlled life rather than the spirit-filled life because the word filled sometimes gives a wrong impression. As the pastor said, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is tremendously important in the life of the Christian because in every part of our Christian life and before we were Christians, the Holy Spirit has a significant part to play. Who was it who convicted us of our sin and of our need of a Savior? It was the Holy Spirit. Who was it when we believed in Christ, regenerated us? It was the Holy Spirit. Who was it who inspired the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit. Who is it that illumines the Scriptures to our mind? The Holy Spirit. Who is it who reveals Christ to us in the Word? It is the Holy Spirit. And so I could go on and enumerate the various areas in which the Holy Spirit uh, is active. But that's enough to make us realize that the Holy Spirit's ministry is of tremendous importance and it's also essential that we should be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30 it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. You know, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that he leaves us. But it's just like when the sun is shining beautifully outside and we're in a room, and the sun is shining in and we pull the blind down. It doesn't mean the sun is not shining, but it means that we have effectively excluded its beneficial rays. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that he leaves us because he comes to abide forever. But it does mean that he cannot exercise that gracious ministry in our lives that he longs to do. There is a tendency, I think, when we speak about the Holy Spirit or think about him, to rather think of an experience we can enjoy or of a power we can exploit, like turning on the switch and the electricity and we get the benefit of the electricity. And those illustrations are they're legitimate, but I don't think they give the, the heart of it. The Holy Spirit is not a power we can exploit. He is a person we can know. Uh, we know a lot about the Holy Spirit, but do we know the Holy Spirit, the person? 
When I was a younger man, I was invited to uh, speak at a dinner. And I had prepared a message that I thought would be suitable, but when I got there and saw the people, I thought this message is not relevant to this group. And while I was munching my dinner, I was thinking, well, Lord, if it's not that, what would you want me to say? And there were many things I could have said, but to my dismay, not one thing would come to mind. And any of you who preach, you can imagine what that uh, situation was. When I rose, they called on me to rise. I didn't have a, a thought to say. But the Lord was doing something for me. So I thought, I'll read the 14th chapter of John, and surely while I'm reading that, some message will come to me. Well, I read, and I got down to verse 7, and it said, If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. Well, that, that struck me, but I didn't have any message out of it. And I went on. <laughs> I, was, I was getting down near the end of the chapter, and I came to verse 17. And then it said, The Spirit of truth, and you know him. And then God graciously illumined my mind and gave me a message. I, I linked it with verse 7. If you had known me, Jesus, you would have known my Father also. And you know the Holy Spirit. And there, I'd lectured on the Holy Spirit, but there, there came with great force to me the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person whom we can know as really as we know the Father and the Son. Well, we, we can all conceive of God as a Father because we know what is the ideal of a Father, even if our fathers haven't been ideal and we haven't been ideal fathers. We know what an ideal Father would be like, and so we can imagine God as a Father. We can imagine the Lord Jesus because he came in flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. And he became a real man and entered into all our experiences and was tempted in all points like as we are. And that brings him very near to us. Uh, I wonder what exactly does it mean that he was tempted in all points like as we are? He didn't have some of our space-age temptations, did he? He didn't know what a TV set was, and he didn't know what some of the programs were like, and he didn't have to turn the knob. You see, he didn't have that kind of experience. But how was he tempted? If you think of it, temptation comes to us along three lines in the main. The first is the desire to enjoy, appetite. God has given us certain appetites. The appetite for food, the appetite for drink, the appetite for sex. And they are, they're neutral, there's nothing wrong with them, except in the way in which we use them. And we can abuse those things, and our appetites get us into a lot of trouble and a lot of sin. And then the second line 
along which our Lord was, uh, uh, by the way, in the temptation, the devil appealed to him along the line of appetite. He'd been fasting for 40 days, and the devil said, uh, turn these stones into bread. Why go hungry? And you know what the Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And uh, the Lord rejected that temptation. The second avenue is the avenue of avarice, the desire to get more things. And if, if there is one sin which is characterized, uh, our society is characterized by, not only in your country, but in my country, it is the sin of covetousness. We're always wanting to get more and better. We've, uh, we've exhausted the language in order to make things attractive and to get people to buy what they don't need. I heard a boy saying the other day, uh, this ice cream is awesome. Well, I thought it was God who was awesome. But you see, they've taken, Madison Avenue have taken our words and they have robbed us of all our superlatives. We, we've got no superlatives left. They've all been emasculated. And so we, we uh, the whole thrust of our society is covetousness, to get things and get more. And uh, our Lord was tempted along that line. He was tempted. The Lord, Satan said, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And the Lord resisted that temptation. And then he was tempted along the third line. Ambition, the desire to be somebody, the desire to make a name for ourselves. And if you analyze the temptations that come to you, you'll find that they come along one of those three lines. And uh, the, this, this is what Satan is doing in our world today. The Holy Spirit is... Uh, just like Jesus. It's very difficult to have a concept of what the Holy Spirit is like. It's not helped by the fact that in the King James Version he's called the Holy Ghost and that immediately makes your mind go into the, the, the mystical things and the spooky things. But I know exactly, I can give you an exact description of what the Holy Spirit is like. When our Lord, in John chapter 16, was telling his disciples that he was going to go away and leave them, he said, I'm not going to leave you orphans, but I am going to send another comforter, another paraclete. I am a paraclete, and the word may just means one called along to, to help. And in 1 John 2 and 2, our Lord is called an advocate, a paraclete. He said, I'm going to send another paraclete. And the word another that he used is a special word. In Greek, there are two words for another. One means another of a different kind. And this means another of exactly the same kind. And so Jesus said, I am going to send another paraclete to be with you and to take my place. 
And he is exactly like me, of exactly the same kind. And when you think of the Holy Spirit, think of him as he has been revealed in Jesus. Now Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. It isn't that he was the Father, but that he was the same as the Father. And in all his acts and attitudes and all his words and deeds during his life, Jesus was showing us what the Father is like. And now he's saying the Holy Spirit is exactly like me. He's just as loving. He'll take my place as though I were with you personally. He's just as much to be worshipped as the Father and the Son. And he will be my other self. He'll be my representative. And his great work is going to be, he's going to take of the things that are mine and he's going to reveal them to you. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit does not center around himself, although he has written a lot about himself in the scriptures, but his, his ministry centers on Christ. He will take of the things that are mine and reveal them to you. So the Holy Spirit is just like Jesus, and he will be to us even more than Jesus could be. Now Jesus said that himself. He said, it is in your highest interest that I go away and leave you. Why? Because when Jesus was on earth, he could be only in one place at one time. He could only be speaking to one person at one time. But when he left and sent the Holy Spirit to be his representative, why, he can be with everybody at the same time. He can be ministering in the lives of every individual member of the body of Christ. How wonderful. Another thing that we need to be clear about is that the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. You don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus, in John 14, he foretold, he says, He dwells with you and shall be in you. And in Romans 8, 9, it says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So that means that every believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling. And Paul said, did you not know that your body was a temple of the Holy Spirit? So we don't have to pray for the Spirit. And yet there's a verse in the Bible that uh, seems to tell you to pray for the Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen. It says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So apparently we're to ask for the Holy Spirit. Well, I could get no mileage out of that verse at all because it seemed to be redundant. If I have the Spirit, and if my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, why should I ask for what I already have? And for many years that verse was redundant to me. And then I was reading a, a book by H.B. Sweet, 
And he pointed out that in the English Bible, the phrase, the Holy Spirit, with a definite article, occurs 88 times. But in the Greek, it's different. There are 54 occurrences when the definite article, the Holy Spirit, is mentioned, and 34 when there's no definite article, just Holy Spirit. And he pointed out that when the definite article is present, it is speaking about the Holy Spirit as a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. But when there is no definite article, when it's just Holy Spirit, then it refers to the operations, the manifestations of the Spirit. And I, I looked up quickly to see whether, which, which, whether there was any definite article in Luke eleven thirteen, and there's no definite article, it's just Holy Spirit. And then I began to see light in that verse. Jesus wasn't saying that if you ask me, I will give you the person of the Holy Spirit. He knew that we already had. He'd imparted the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But what he was saying was, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father impart to you that operation of the Holy Spirit which will enable you to fulfill your part in the body of Christ, will enable you to serve me effectively. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the operation of the Spirit that you need if you ask him? But of course, as James said, we are to ask in faith. Now, the word filled doesn't mean something poured into you. What does the word mean? If you take its uh, occurrence in other portions of Scripture, you get the idea of it. For example, when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to leave them, it says they were filled with sorrow. They couldn't imagine life. He'd been the center of their life, and now he was going to go and leave them. And they couldn't imagine life without it. And they were filled with sorrow. He says the disciples were filled with fear. It says when Ananias was being spoken to by Peter, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, what does it mean? What happens when your heart is filled with sorrow? It means it's controlled, it's possessed. You can't think of anything else. When you're filled with fear. I was staying with a lady yesterday in Birmingham, and only a few days ago, she and her husband were walking along the street when a car pulled up alongside them and there was a man with a gun and he said, give me your purse. And she was so paralyzed with fear that she didn't do anything. And then he said, give me your purse. And her husband grabbed the thing and threw it to the man. But you see... What happened when she was filled with fear? She was gripped and controlled by fear. 
And that is the meaning of the word. When it says be filled by the Spirit, it means be controlled by the Spirit. When I was a, a boy, it was before the days even of motion pictures. Can you imagine that? There was no motion pictures. In, we had very little in the way of amusements. There was no such thing as radio. No airplane, nothing like that. And, uh, but there was a hypnotist came to our town one time and he took the theater and the crowds went along to see him performing his tricks. But one night he had a whole row of businessmen behind him and he called one man out whom I knew and uh, he put him in the chair and performed his passes and the man went into a trance. Then he asked him a question. He said, if you were a king, what would you do? And the big businessman said, if I were a king, I would swing on a gate and eat fat bacon all day. <laughs> well, that was, was that his idea of being a king? Where did that idea come from? He had been, his personality had been brought under the control of the hypnotist and the hypnotist injected his thoughts into that man's mind and made him say something foolish. Now that's a bad, an illustration of a bad thing. But if one human being can so control another person that they can inject their thoughts and get that person to say something that he would never have said otherwise, why should we have any problem in thinking that the Holy Spirit of God could take possession of our personality at our request and with our cooperation, not making our mind blank and then waiting for something to happen. But the Holy Spirit wants to control our lives. He wants to exercise the Lordship of Christ and he does it from within. You see, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he is living in us. And what does he do? How does he manifest his presence? The first thing is he illumines our minds with the truth of God. He makes the truth of God come alive. And uh, what wonderful changes can take place in our thinking. I remember in Papua New Guinea, when I was there, I was speaking and there was an Indian lady there, very beautiful, very clever lady. And she was there right through the meetings. And at the close, she came up to me and she said, God has entirely changed my way of thinking during this day, these days. There the Holy Spirit had been at work. He'd illumined her mind with the truth and she had responded. So that's what he, he takes our intellect and enables us to see spiritual truth. Now the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit, their foolishness to him. Neither can he know them for they are spiritually discerned. The only way in which a person can know the things of the Spirit of God is first of all to be born again. 
the Holy Spirit regenerating and imparting the new life, and then for the Holy Spirit to illumine the mind. Then not only does he illumine the mind with the truth of God, but he purifies our affections with the love of God. He takes our polluted emotions, and it's so easy for us to fix our emotions and our affections on things that are less than wonderful, isn't it? But he takes our emotions and our affections and purifies them, applies the mediatorial work of Christ to the heart and cleanses us, and then fixes our affections on Christ. That is the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's a hymn written by Father Faber that expresses the the way in which a person can fall in love with Christ. He said, Oh, wonderful, that thou should let so vile a heart as mine love thee with such a love as this and make so free with thine. O Jesus, Jesus, dearest Lord, forgive me if I say for very love thy sacred name a thousand times a day. Burn, burn, O love, within my heart. Burn fiercely night and day till all the dross of earthly loves is burned and burned away. And you know, every time I think of that hymn and I think of my love, is so tepid, so lukewarm, and yet the Holy Spirit is there. What to do to fix our affections on Christ? And then from within, he reinforces our will to do the will of God. Now we want to do the will of God. We want to be obedient. But so often our will lets us down just at the crucial point. And how many times have we been brought to that place that Paul speaks about in Romans 7, 24, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from this body of death? But the Holy Spirit is there. What to do? To reinforce our will. It is God who works in you both to will, to impart the desire and the purpose, and to enable you to carry it into action. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so the Holy Spirit takes our intellect and enables us to see the truth of God. He takes our emotions, purifies them, and fixes them on Christ. And then he takes our weak will and strengthens it so that we can do the will of God. And thus he brings our lives under his control. Now, how can I know that my life is filled with the Spirit in that sense? As we read in that chapter, there will be a change in behavior in all the areas of life. There will be a discernible pattern of behavior 
that is in keeping with the Word of God. And you'll notice that first, after it says, uh, be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, it goes on and says, speaking to yourselves or speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here in personal life, there's going to be a change. Instead of being a life of complaining and uh, groaning under the pressure of things, there will be springing up in the heart uh, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It'll be natural to speak about spiritual things. Now, we can all get very voluble when we're talking about a football match, can't we? And it isn't it strange when it comes to spiritual things how tongue-tied we are. Why? Because we don't allow the Holy Spirit to control our talk. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about football matches. Very good. I like to see a good football match, but not American football. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the, the Holy Spirit will fill our hearts with praise. And then, do you notice the next thing? You look at your Bible. Next thing he says, always giving thanks for everything. This is two of the awful absolutes of Scripture. Always, not occasionally giving thanks for something, but always giving thanks for everything. You say, but that's supernatural. Of course it is. But is God not supernatural? Why is it that we expect the minimum from God? Why don't we expect God to do something in us? He won't change our temperaments, but he will, he, he will mold them. You see, after Pentecost, Peter was still the same man. He had the same tendency to foot-and-mouth disease as he had before. But after the day of Pentecost, he was no longer Peter the volatile. He was Peter the rock man. He had one or two lapses, but there, after the day of Pentecost, he was a changed man. And so with the others. John, the apostle of love, he was a, Jesus called him a son of thunder. Well, you don't think of John in that way, do you? And yet you remember when they came to that Samaritan village and uh, they wanted to go through and they wouldn't let them, What did James and John say? Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and burn the show up? That's the (laughs) apostle of love. But uh, you see, what happened on the day of Pentecost changed John. And the final picture you see of the old man when he is in the island of Patmos, they bring the old man, he's like myself, too too frail to come in by himself, and they carried him in. He would say, Little children love one another. And that's Boanerges, the son of thunder. God, the Holy Spirit, can change our characters and change and discipline our temperaments so that we don't fall into the uh, sins that we often uh, have done. So that's in personal life. He does that. 
Then what about in family life, in domestic life? And isn't, isn't that the most difficult area with us all? It's, what, it's not what I am in public, but what, I'm, what I am in private that is the true test of character. My wife has been dead many years, but I used to enjoy having her in the congregation. For one, because I knew she was praying for me, and two, because I knew that she knew whether I was living out the things I was speaking about. And that is a very salutary thing, and it's good for us. But what does the Holy Spirit do in the domestic life? You'll notice that verse 21 comes before verse 22. Well, what does verse 21 say? Verse 21 says, Submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, here in the ordinary relationships of life, it's not to be one person having all their own way, but uh, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. Husband submitting to wife, wife submitting to husband, children obeying parents, and so on. Submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. And then in verse 22, the crunch comes. And it says, wives, obey your husbands. And that is very difficult. But you see, it's moving now from the general tenor of life to the headship of the home. And now it says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And in the family domestic relationship, the husband is the head of the wife. And uh, I can imagine some saying, well, some wife saying, well, if you knew my husband, you knew the problem I'm up against. Well, maybe that's so. But uh, there is no exemption from it. But what does it say to the husbands? If the wife may think that... Uh, her role is very difficult. What about that of the husband? Husbands, love your wives. How much are you to love them? Or oh, just a little. Only as much as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that's all. Husbands, how do we measure up along this line? Do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? How did he love the church? Sacrificially, enough to give himself up for it. Do I give myself up for my wife? Am I sacrificial in the intimate things of life or am I selfish? Do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? That's a tremendously searching thing. But it doesn't stop there. If you notice two or three verses lower down, it says, the husband is to love his wife as he loves his own body. And uh, I think Paul had his tongue in his cheek and says, <laughs> men look after their bodies all right. No one else, uh, no, no one ever treats their body very badly. 
And that's not enough. He finishes up at the end of the chapter, the husband ought to love his wife as his own self. Now, if we husbands were like that, you wives wouldn't have very much problem in submitting to the headship of the husband. And when husbands abdicate their responsibility and do not take the head of the home and the wife has to take it up or or the whole show would disintegrate, what happens? Well, you don't have an ideal home or an ideal marriage. It's when the divine order is observed. When the husband so loves his wife that he only asks for her that which is going to be in the best, in her best interest and in the best interest of the family, then you have an ideal home. So here is the answer to marital problems. The first part, you have the answer to the problems of personal life. And then he goes on. He says, children. In chapter 6, verse 1, children. What are spirit children to do? They can be filled, their lives can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And if their lives are controlled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say children argue with your parents and try to get your own way. It says, children, obey your parents and honor your father and mother. You see how the practical the Bible is. Now, you talk about filling with the Spirit, and that's generally associated with excitement and thrills going up and down the spine. Well, there may be emotion in, in it, and, and we are emotional beings. And if my, if my life is changed and the Holy Spirit exercises the lordship of my life, I'm going to know a joy that I never knew before because I'm in line with the will of God. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to business life. Servants, obey your masters as though you were serving Christ. In other words, you give a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Or even if you don't get a fair day's pay, you serve your master as the the Lord. What about masters? You do the same to your servants. You, if you expect them to give you a good day's work, you see you give them a good day's wage. And here you have the answer to problems of labor and management. And so in personal life, in domestic life, in business life, the Holy Spirit is the answer. Be filled with the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit control your life. And then you will see the work uh, going ahead in the church as well as in the personal life. Just in closing, may I say what the Holy Spirit does when we allow him full control of our lives. First of all, he mediates the presence of Christ. I'll never forget when as a young man for the first time I really yielded my life to the control of the Holy Spirit. What happened? 
the presence of Christ became so real, so wonderful, that I was scarcely, I was afraid to breathe lest I should lose it. And I thought, oh, this is very wonderful at a conference when, when I'm with, uh, with Christian people. But what about when I get back to business? I was in law then. Uh, here we're all thinking about spiritual things and it's easy to experience the presence of Christ, but what will it be when I get back to my office? But to my delight, I found that even when my mind was engrossed with legal problems, when I wasn't thinking of the Lord at all, about a foot lower down, there was a sense of the presence of Christ. I've illustrated when my wife was alive, I'm in my study and perhaps I'm adding up columns of figures and she's sitting alongside doing fancy work or something. I'm not thinking of her. You can't think of your wife and add up figures and get the right answer. <laughs> but I, I knew she was there and I was enjoying her presence without thinking of her. If she went out of the room, I knew she went out, I knew she came back, but I wasn't thinking about her. And yet, I was enjoying her presence. You know, it's wonderful with the Lord. And even although you're doing other things, if you're walking in fellowship with the Spirit of God, you, the Holy Spirit will mediate the presence of Christ. And then he'll reproduce the character of Christ the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, discipline. He will change us into the likeness of Christ and reproduce the character of Christ. And then he will empower us in the service of Christ. You'll notice that on the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had descended and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, they didn't rent the upper room to hold holiness meetings in. They went out into the street where the people were and preach the word. And if the Holy Spirit has control of my life, it won't be a self-centered life, concentrating on my own progress in holiness merely. It will be an outward going thing. And I will be moving out to fulfill the Great Commission where I am now and assisting it to be filled, fulfilled in other places. So then, here are a few thoughts concerning being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. And the initiative is now with you. Are you going to continue to have your life run by yourself? Or are you going to allow the Holy Spirit to exercise the Lordship of Christ in your life.